Welcome to Career and Leadership Real Talk, the no-nonsense guide for ambitious managers who want to have more impact and progress their career. I'm Pamela Langan, a job search coach and expert CV writer specializing in helping frustrated professionals land the jobs and pay rises they know they deserve. And I'm Jackie Jagger, a leadership and mindset coach specializing in helping newly promoted and new to role leaders to avoid the dickhead trap and lead with confidence. Between us, we've helped hundreds of leaders and managers to find new roles, take ownership of their careers, and handle the challenges that job searches and leadership responsibility inevitably bring. And now we're joining forces to share with you what we know has worked for our clients. Hello, and welcome to episode 12. Today, we are talking about taking ownership of your own onboarding. So starting a new role, getting into that new role, and really being able to get to the point where you feel sorted, you feel like you know what's going on, and you've got a really good steer on how you're going to go about delivering in that role. So Pam, I would imagine this is something for your job search clients that kind of follows on from the work that you do. So what are the elements that you see around onboarding? So I think for me with onboarding, and yet that you're right, this obviously every time a new client gets a job, then they're in to the onboarding process, aren't they? They're going in and they've got to get stuck in and they've got this enormous pressure to make a great first impression. So they go into the organization usually hopeful that the organization is going to give them a plan and that they are going to get this plan. They're going to execute this plan. They're going to learn all about the business. They're going to be able to go through all the different elements and they are going to be able to make it a really good impact. They're, they're going to raise their profile. And at the end of the first 90 days, when they're out of the probation period, or they hope that by the end of that 90 days, they'll be out of the probation period and moving forward, fully integrated into the role. But we know that doesn't always happen, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> That's a bit of an understatement. Yeah, it's so it's a really interesting one because what so I work with people who are newly promoted or new to role, but it's comparatively unusual that they get to work with me immediately. It's often because something hasn't quite gelled in the very initial phase in the way that I've been hoped. And therefore, either they or their company might reach out to me for support because they can see that this person's got potential. They know that they've got capacity to do the job well and something is quite sticking. And onboarding is a really important opportunity and a really important phase because transitioning into a new role is pretty vulnerable. You're in a phase where you don't necessarily know the business, where, you know, you're settling in and you've got new tasks, new things that are coming your way, new decisions that you've got to take that you didn't have to take previously. And you may have a new team that everything changed. And so it's a really tough time. And there are some really simple things that can make it easier for people to settle in. But companies as a whole are shocking at providing a plan to help people do that. And I don't think it's intentional. I think intentions are normally pretty good. But particularly when people go into a more senior role, so if you're already a manager and you're maybe being promoted to a head of or, you know, you're taking on additional responsibilities, I think there's almost this expectation that we don't need to spoon feed you, you can do it for yourself. And yet when people do have a good onboarding experience, it's often in the earlier phases of their career. So that could be a bit of a shock. 
It's like you've had all these lovely planned inductions and onboarding in more junior roles with structured training and two weeks before you go on the job or what have you. And then you get to a certain level and all of a sudden, woof, that rug's pulled away. Yeah. And that's something I've experienced in my career and on more than one occasion as well. And it's almost what I say to my clients now is when you start a new job, there's always an element of buyer's remorse. You know, like when you buy the house and you think, oh my goodness, I didn't realize it needed so much work, but done the right thing. And it's the same process I think you go through with a new job because you get in there and if there isn't a great onboarding plan or if people are too busy to sit down with you and really explain what needs to happen or they say you're at senior level now, so off you go, run with it, schedule your own onboarding. It can be really difficult and you can think, what what have I done? Have I made the right decision? If you do feel like that or you felt like that, then you'll know that it's, it's really unsettling, isn't it, to feel like that. But Jackie has got a really good process that she takes her client to and I think you should talk everyone through it and also it's available to download on the website as well so I and I think probably what I would say before I talk through the structure is that this is hopefully really useful for people who are having to take control of their own onboarding but it's also a structure that I encourage managers and leaders to consider when they're planning for someone else's Because regardless of what the company as a whole does, if you've got someone starting on your team, then you can make sure that they're set up for success by creating some structure around that initial phase. So what I would always say is your first 30 days, you really should expect that the majority of your time is purely about learning, understanding and being in the position to make a good plan for the next 60 or 90 days beyond that. And I think people come in feeling like they should be able to create a 90-day plan. And often you might be asked that question at interview. You might have had to present what you do in your first 100 days. And often that kind of goes by the by when people get there. They feel the pressure to hit the ground running and make an impact and start doing stuff straight away. And so the first thing I would always say is, Use that first 30 days to really accelerate your learning and understanding and get yourself to the point where you can make a meaningful plan that has some context around it. So that's the first thing I would say. And then in terms of the structure, what I do is I break down that knowledge gain into four separate areas. And I think two of them, people often are kind of like, yeah, that's questions I expected to ask myself it's the things that I thought I needed to know and then the other two perhaps can be under prioritized so first off you've got the business context and this is obviously if you are joining a new business you will need to learn a whole heap of things so you've got vision mission values you've got the how does this company compare to the experience I've had in other businesses in terms of industry, size, scope, the way the decisions get made and the level of kind of process. So I made a move at one point in my career from a very big structured corporate with a lot of rigor and very little autonomy for managers into a fast growing beyond a startup, I guess more of a scale up where there was an awful lot of autonomy, decisions were made much more quickly. So that context change made a huge difference. So that's the first thing is the business. And again, I think pretty straightforward. And then you've also got the role itself. So 
what is the purpose of this role that you've been recruited into? What are the key metrics that you're going to be measured against? Are there already objectives in place for this role? Are they objectives that need to be created? If there are objectives in place, if there was a predecessor that you've replaced, how are those metrics performing against what's expected? Where are the things where it's performing well? Where are the things where there might need to be focus or attention or work? And that one, again, really straightforward. And I think those two, typically people know they need to ask those questions. Managers often share some of that, maybe not to the level of depth that I would encourage people to really get stuck into, but certainly there's some focus on that typically. One that I think is really important but is underprioritized is around the team. And this is the team in two senses. So you've got team that you're leading or managing if you're in a managerial role and also your team of peers. And really thinking about how those teams operate. How do, you know, if you're managing a team, how does that team like to be managed? What's been their experience previously? I had an example where somebody came in when I was part of a team and they didn't start off by understanding how were we seen, how were we, you know, how experienced were we? And so it felt quite patronizing to be on the receiving end of because actually we were performing well. We already had lots of cross-functional teams that we were part of, that we picked up various projects within the business. And this person coming in really missed a beat by not having that as one of their key priorities because then anything that they needed to achieve, they'd put people's backs up. People were frustrated. They were feeling like their wings had been clipped because the previous manager had given so much autonomy and really picked us up within the business and put us in that light. And now all of a sudden it's kind of like, well, you're trying to do all this yourself. Okay. And we'll sit back and just let you at it then. So that, that kind of awareness and understanding with your team that you're managing, but like I say, also with your team of peers, is there a lot of cross-functional working? If you're used to a lot of cross-functional working and this business doesn't have that, then that can be a real shock to the system. The same the other way around. If you're used to having a lot of functional autonomy and now this is a business where the expectation is that you have a much more collaborative working relationship with your peers than you've been used to, then that context is going to be really important to how you settle in and how you operate within the role. And then the final one that people often really under-prioritize in terms of their learning and understanding is about you, yourself and how you operate. Because starting a new role is a vulnerable time, one of the things that's really key is to consider how do you communicate with other people what you need? How do you make sure that you're explicit about what will get the best out of you? How does it impact you when you're operating under scrutiny? Because people are forming judgments about you all the time. And for many people, that sense of being under scrutiny is really tough to handle. It doesn't feel comfortable. And when you reflect on those things, then you can incorporate that and you can start to be quite open and share some of that with other people. And 
that can diffuse some of that sense of feeling under scrutiny. And particularly if you have that explicit conversation with your boss about how it feels. I remember having a conversation with a boss of mine a few months in about I was really struggling with my confidence. And she was like, well, you seem really confident. And I'm like, I get that, but I'm not. I'm actually finding this and this quite tricky. And so it was really important to be upfront about that challenge around my confidence. So yeah, so those are the kind of four areas. And I would say the first 30 days is really, and what people can go to the website and download is literally just a workbook with a series of questions to ask yourself under those four headings and just help you to be aware of what information do you need to find? What do you need to pull together? What's already in the plan that's been created for you and what might you need to do a bit more digging around? So that's available at careerandleadershiprealtalk.com and you can just go and, and download that and use that either for yourself or if you've got somebody joining your team, it can be a great conversation piece with them to help them with their own onboarding. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think if you can go through that and just, I mean, it might even be worth doing if you've not had the best onboarding experiences in the past, just to see what was missed and what you could have done differently, what you will do differently next time and what you could put in place for a new team member starting as well but one thing I just wanted to pick up on there because I think it's quite key when you were talking about confidence because it is you can still come across as confident as being a confident person yet feel that you are lacking almost the job confidence isn't it in a new role but you can really confuse the two, I think. So it's one thing being self-confident and knowing, you know, what you're capable of and what you can deliver. But then it's another thing being job confident and trying to combine them both or kind of have them both working at the same level. But you'll always expect a dip in confidence, won't you, when you start a new role. And it's like how you deal with it, because I think sometimes that can really knock people sideways because they're like, you know, I am this confident person. I know what I bring to the table. I know what I can deliver. But all of a sudden, there's like this curveball or this learning curve that I'm now on. And it's like, how do you deal with that, isn't it? And how do you, you move forward with that and you, without completely losing all confidence in yourself? What would you say, Jackie, was the best thing to do? So two things from that. One, I love the distinction between job confidence and self-confidence because I think people sometimes don't create that distinction and often it is the job confidence. And then what happens is because people feel a dip in confidence, it almost then tags on and impacts their self-confidence if they don't create that distinction. And I think the other thing I would say is for you and I, yes, absolutely. We think that's totally normal. We see it all the time with our clients. When I was employed, it took a fair while for me to get to the point of realizing, oh, yeah, this is the normal cycle. This, this is what happens when I start a new role. And since that point, the number of times that I have warned people that are new into role about, I call it the wall. And it's normally at some point between two to four weeks in, I would say normally when it hits hardest and it's just, there's this, just this point where you said buyer's remorse really kicks in where it's that whole thing of, oh my God, I've got so much to learn. There is so much to do in this job. Is this too big of a job? 
what do people think of me? And it's, it is really tough. And I think if you can just understand that we see hundreds and hundreds of people who go through this, it is normal. The, it's, the norm is to go through this. The exception is people that kind of sail through and they feel fully confident. And I would argue sometimes if you do sail through and feel fully confident, that probably you could have stretched yourself and you could have gone for a role that could perhaps provide a bit more challenge because it's totally normal. So I think just preparing yourself for it, understanding it, and I love that distinction between job confidence and self-confidence and accepting that it's, of course, I'm lacking in job confidence because this job is new. This job is something that I've not done before. That doesn't mean that all of the qualities that combine to bring me the self-confidence have gone away. And what have I got there that I can lean into? So often when I'm working with clients, one of the things that I really encourage them to get clear on is their strengths and their values. And strengths, people often really struggle to articulate, maybe more so when they've made the external move because they've done some of that work for their CV, where they've kind of recognized some of their achievements. But we're just conditioned to focus more on what we lack than what we bring. And people just don't find it as easy, I've found, to identify their strengths and what they, what they do have. Yeah, definitely. And I always take it one step further as well with the strengths. And I always say, what are your strengths? But actually, what are those strengths that you like to be using? Because it's one thing being good at something. It's another thing actually wanting to use that skill or that strength on a daily basis. So it's also a good, it's almost like a gauge as well, isn't it? If you are, if you've got the opportunity to influence a role and you can lean more into the strengths that you enjoy working within or the skills that you enjoy using on a daily basis. And you can lean into those and really make an impact in them areas and really enjoy that job as well. I think that makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think there's a difference between a strength and a skill. So you can build a skill Mm -hmm. and get to the stage of being quite good at something. But to me, strengths are the things that create a sense of energy they come naturally to you in a way that they might not to other people an example I give with clients is I often used to be given stuff to proofread because I would spot mistakes in it I have such a disinterest in detail it's untrue but the reason I was able to do that was because I have high standards and I'm quite competitive so to me there's almost that challenge of finding things and making sure it's right before it goes out. So people used to give me that, not because of my attention to detail, but because they knew that I could deliver. And that didn't excite me at all. I was yeah, I can do it and I can spot the mistakes and I can find them. But that for me is not interesting or exciting. Give me a people puzzle. Give me a discussion about something there. And then my brain fires in and I love all of that side of it. And I think when people, so I think what you said was a really good question to ask yourself, as I approach this role, what are the strengths that I want to lean into? What are the things that come naturally to me that I can consciously choose to use when it comes to relationship building, for example, what strengths or skills do you have? that will allow you to build relationships effectively. There's a million and one ways 
to do a lot of things and relationship building can come from a number of angles. So, you know, if you find it really easy to have small talk with people, then great, you can use that strength. But I think sometimes people that don't have that strength feel, oh, I'm not really sure how to build relationships. Yeah, but if you're interested in more of the depth rather than the small talk, then you can ask questions in a different way. So an example from my experience was I was doing some recruiting. I had a meeting with somebody from the finance team who had a vacancy. And rather than just go straight into business, I was, oh, well, we've not met before. I'd be really interested to know before we talk about this vacancy, what's your background? How have you ended up here? And let's share a bit about what's important in terms of these roles. So that wasn't small talk chit chat that would have felt quite awkward for me. It was a very natural thing of, I'm genuinely interested. But what that meant was there was more of a relationship rather than it being a transactional conversation of, you've got this vacancy, brief me on this vacancy, I'll go and look for this person for you. That really established a much more collaborative working relationship, just literally from a couple of questions and going more in depth with asking those questions. So asking yourself what comes naturally to you, what do you enjoy? And then how can you use that, I think is a really helpful strategy for people in those first few months. Yeah. And especially with what you're saying there, about small talk as well, because people find that so difficult, don't they? Especially if it doesn't come naturally to you. And that in, in itself can almost knock your confidence. And what you've said there, it's about being curious. So rather than thinking, what questions can I just reel off and ask? This person and bombard them with questions because small talk is just about asking questions. Actually, if you think of small talk as becoming curious and being more curious, you will get more information from someone. You'll feel so much more comfortable and you will find that the conversation flows so much easier rather than your brain working over time trying to think of a million questions to ask someone, talk about the weather ask them where they're going on holiday, just be curious about what you're doing, what they're doing, what their journey is, has been up to this point. And you'll find that those conversations flow so much easier. And on a slightly different note, one of the things that I want to come back to that we spoke about before we came on. So when people are being onboarded into a new role, one of the things that is really key is understanding the objectives about what are the deliverables for this role. And I know that's something that you talked about in terms of so many places do not do a good job of making that clear. So how can people do that? What's been your experience when you haven't had clear objectives? Yeah, I think for me in the past, there's been times in the past, like especially like early on in my career where I came massively unstuck because I was just given someone else's objectives or I was expected to work to my manager's objectives. And I didn't at that point ask, I didn't ask at any point at the start, what does success look like? What are your expectations? What are you expecting me to deliver? I was just accepting those objectives as, okay, so I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z to contribute and then I'll tick the box. But actually, it wasn't always possible to tick the box. And as I went through my career and as I gained more experience, it was like, okay, so what are the objectives of this role? What are your expectations of what you want me to deliver in this role? What does it look like? And how are you going to monitor the success? How are you going to mark me off at the end of the month or 
the end of three months or six or whatever the time period is and say, you've achieved everything. We set out what outcomes do you want to see? And it was almost like starting with the outcome. I was then able to track back and create the objective because if you just create an objective, without thinking about how it's going to be measured and what the outcome looks like the chances are at some point during that time period that you're trying to to deliver that you'll come unstuck because you didn't have a clear picture of what was expected or you might go off on a different tangent which might not be what your manager expected you might think well I've ticked the box and they had a completely different idea on what they wanted you to achieve. So what I always say to my clients is sit down with your manager, ask them what their expectations are in the first month, two months, three months. And then, you know, what does success look like? What will you be expecting from me? And then you can create the objectives on the back of that. And then usually you can figure out also what support do I need and, you know, who do I need to speak to and all all linking with along the way. Yeah. And I think that's another really good example of taking ownership because it's really easy to just go with the flow. And if you haven't been given objectives, then it can be tricky. But I think purely by having that conversation with your manager that says, okay, what does success look like? They either will have a clear picture of that, which will help you then to be able to identify and agree. And you can propose those objectives so you don't have to ask them to set your objectives. You can say, okay, so if that's what success looks like, right, this is my approach. This is how I'm going to get to it. But it's also that element of that if they can't articulate what success looks like, then by pushing for that clarity, then you get both you and them in a better place to be on the same page, which wouldn't happen without you taking that ownership of having that conversation. And I think sometimes people either accept, like you say, and I'd like, I've seen that so many times, people start a new job and it's like, oh yeah, these are the objectives and they're just whatever the previous person was. Or more commonly, there's no objectives at all because it's outside of the appraisal cycle. So it's almost like you've got to wait until the appraisal time comes round. And then we'll set you some objectives for another year. And both for you and for your manager, it's so beneficial to start to create those shorter term objectives and have something that's really, it gives you, going back to that job confidence piece, it gives you some job confidence if you can start to create some successes within that first three months. Because if you've delivered on something, then you've got that kind of tangible tick in the box that says, I was setting out to achieve that and I've achieved it. And that really helps with building the job confidence and gaining momentum to go on from there. So is there anything that we've not already covered that you're kind of, yeah, actually that's really key when it comes to taking ownership of your onboarding? I think the only other thing that I was thinking where people come unstuck a lot, especially as and newly promoted managers as well. So this is going to be a good one for you is about making changes as you go into a new role as a manager. And it's almost like you've got to put your stamp on the team. You've got to go in and put your stamp. You've got to go in and be seen and be heard. You're this new manager on the block and you know, you've got to change something to show that you've made your mark. And what I've found is when you do that, it can really unsettle things and it can, it can cause you more problems in the long run. And I really love the way when you were talking through that process and it's about getting under the skin of what's going on and thinking about the team and not just the team that you manage, but 
the team that you work within as well. Because if you get under the skin of what's going on within them teams, you know, who usually makes decisions, how they make those decisions, then, you know, if you get that information up front, then you won't run the risk of undermining somebody, making someone feel like rubbish, making the team feel like they want to down tools, which we've seen that happen loads and loads of times. And that can be one of the things that hit you hard. That's one of the things that hit me hard as a brand new manager. My first management role, I felt like I had to go in and whip everyone into shape and get everybody singing to my tune when actually I just needed to listen to what, what was going on for them and understand them. And that realization and doing that doing it in that way in the next role made such a difference what's your view on that yeah definitely I think that's one of the biggest things when people are going through that onboarding phase is you'll hear phrases like hit the ground running sounds great doesn't it what business doesn't want someone to hit the ground running in a new role but the reality is there is a phase that has to come of learning and understanding and there is a massive temptation when you feel under scrutiny, when you go in, because you see stuff that you feel like you can make a difference with. So it's normally really well-intentioned, but if that's done too quickly without the right buy-in, without the right understanding of context, it can set you back so much. And I would say to people, I am not a cautious person by nature. I'm pretty much a, oh, let's wing it. Let's see how it goes. But there is definitely a time for going slower and focusing on the learning rather than on making changes and stamping your mark. And that kind of induction onboarding phase is it. Because if you get it wrong, it, you've got twice as much work to try and recover the relationships from the people whose noses are out of joint or whose backs are up. So Yeah, exactly. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever got from one of my mentors was slow down to speed up. Yeah, definitely. Agree with that one during the onboarding phase. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope that has been helpful and has given some structure for those of you who are approaching a new role or maybe are managing people who are coming into your team. That download, we will put the link in the show notes and it's available on careerandleadershiprealtalk.com. As ever, if you've enjoyed the episode and got value from it, then we would love for you to rate and review us. We are on Spotify, podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And we really appreciate when people make the effort to give us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you again next time.